From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Kara Capuano. Thank you for listening to the UCI Podcast. The month of March is known for March Madness, a branded nickname for the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament, a time when College Hoops fans spend tons of hours passionately cheering on their favorite teams while also toiling in anguish over their predictive tournament brackets. From Selection Sunday on March 12th until the NCAA championship game on April 3rd, televisions all over the nation will be tuned in to watch a field of 68 teams play for their one shining moment. In advance of that upcoming basketball binge and on the heels of a Super Bowl, which saw over 113 million viewers tune in on February 12th to watch the Chiefs eke out a 38-35 win over the Eagles, it's a terrific time to talk to Victoria E. Johnson, professor of film and media studies and African-American studies about her latest book, which is titled Sports TV. Professor Johnson, thank you for joining us today on the UCI podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let's start with your decision to take a deep dive into the history of sports television. What's your personal connection and what motivated this? Well, you know, I think from the time I can first remember TV, I was a sports fan. And I think all writing is essentially autobiographical in some way. And for me, like, when I was between the ages of three and seven, my dad was a was a law professor, and we lived in Norman, Oklahoma in those years. And I became uh, really interested in Oklahoma Sooner football in particular. And, you know, but it was also about the connection with my dad. He would take me to like autograph day. And this was a really dynastic era in OU football um, with players like Greg Pruitt and the Selman brothers. And you know, I kind of got to know them not just as what I perceived as heroic players on field, but also, you know, as people that off field that I really admired. And I don't think I had the language for it then, but looking back on it, I think a lot of that early formation really started questions in my mind about sports relationship to questions of race, gender, and community that then I carried through in terms of my other work on TV, which became really interested in the intersection between race, sports, race and community in particular on TV, um, but also questions of geography and why certain spaces get represented and others don't and so forth. And as I moved through my career professionally, I you know, was always very interested in the TV that people really, really watched and thinking about why things are popular and why often the popular things are less critically analyzed. Um, and so sports fell very well within that kind of focus in terms of sports always being also about questions of race, questions of community, and also the most popular TV across not just the U.S., but across the world. And one of the few realms of popular media that still attracts really diversified audiences. It was certainly the most popular TV in my house. And my relationship with my father and my connection to things like the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers of my youth and the World Series winning Dodgers of my youth led on my own career trajectory into sports broadcasting. So I understand that connection. Yeah. We've seen many changes in sports television over time. 
As someone who has studied this history meticulously, what stands out to you as some of the biggest transformations, the major turning points in sports TV? As a television historian whose object is sports media, I do tend to think in terms of the medium first. And I think that uh, particularly we see in the broadcast era the ways in which television as an industry and sports as an industry come up together as historic analogs. So during the broadcast era, there's a real appeal to the ethic of broadcasting being a kind of shared address to a mass differentiated audience, uh, which sports as it becomes institutionalized, also has that same kind of appeal to community, a, a broad community of fans within a particular area being addressed at once in terms of the franchise, the team. And so that kind of ethic of broadcasting, as sports becomes increasingly national, so does broadcast media. Um, but you still have this kind of uh, notion that sports is, is a public service in a way, serving a broad community of fans. And as television transitions into a more niche era in terms of cable, where you can have a particular uh, channel just dedicated completely to sports, you start to see increasingly some kinds of changes in terms of the sports industry itself, in terms of markets being much more focused. And now we see the sort of final extent of that in terms of, well, probably not the final, but the extension of that to things like app-based media, which increasingly refine um, the audiences of sports into very focused interest groups um, and move uh, increasingly the address of sports media away from a kind of shared uh, market address to a much more specific kind of niche address. Do you think then that that's what's next, continuing to move in that direction? Or might we, might we see a change back the other way? Yeah, I mean, I think you can see this is the other reason sports media is always fascinating because it's always defined through paradox. Um, it's you, th you think it's going one way, but it's also always retaining all of its past forms as it moves into newer and newer forms. So you still have a very strong kind of ethos of the broadcast media within sports. Certainly we see this in March Madness, right, where an entire and the Super Bowl, you know, these giant uh, sports events which attract huge mass audiences, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. But at the same time, you have increasingly refined ability to sort of interact with sports in a very individualized ways through things like analytics-driven uh, apps and you know, gambling-driven apps in the computer in your hand, helping you interact with what you see on screen. It's such a change from, I think we're similarly aged, and I grew up in the classic network era as it's defined in your book, the 1950s to the 1980s. And to your point, I never thought when I was watching a game that I would have a device in my hand or even a computer in my lap that would let me interact in that way. What has the experience been like for you? Because my other critical interests in scholarship are uh, critical race theory and cultural geography, I've always been really interested in the ways in which sports helps us to reconnect with community or to connect with or imagine community. And one of the things I find interesting about the streaming era is that for me personally, it has allowed me to, for instance, watch local 
basketball broadcast from the town where I grew up, right? So I can actually, in my living room in Southern California, watch my hometown arena in Carbondale, Illinois, throughout basketball season, which is not something that in the broadcast era I could have been able to do, right? So on the one hand, you have this sort of uh, global mobility in this media era, but you also have the ability to sort of relocalize your sense of media. I think we sometimes overestimate the idea of how mobile we all really are in this era. But I also think that, as I talk about uh, in one of the chapters in the book, there's a way in which the sports team is what connects you back to your local sense of self often, regardless of where you are. And this is something that streaming media actually do allow a reconnection with. That and like fan clubs for viewing teams from out of town, for instance. March, known for March Madness, but it's also Women's History Month. Women specifically have fought pretty hard to carve out space in the landscape of sports television. How did that expansion of programming, such as the launch of ESPN in 1979, impact women trying to make a mark in sports broadcasting, and then along the way also impact the increase of exposure to women's sports on television? So this is an area of sport that I think has really benefited from this turn to streaming and the multi-channel outlets that digitalization offers in TV so that you have sort of mainstream now sports outlets like ESPN able to dedicate a kind of digital tier to women's sports coverage, which in the past had been really only on their web platforms. And I think also you see other streaming outlets, the startup outlets, for instance, that are able to focus particularly on women's sports. So here you have back to the paradox, right, which is um, if you are already a fan of women's sports and you're really activist in seeking those that coverage out, it's available to you in uh, multiple different platforms now. But what was potentially, I guess I'm potentially nostalgic for about the broadcast era is that in, for instance, digest programs like Wide World of Sports or something, you would see women's sports coverage and potentially audiences that might not think they were interested would be exposed to it and then be able to you know, investigate more uh, where they might see that programming. There's still a shocking lack of coverage of women's sports. I feel like this season there's been a slight shift to better conversation and coverage of women's college basketball in mainstream read predominantly male sports uh, journalism. And I wonder if, in fact, that will help to lead to some some shifts. I think also fan cultures are, I think, a bit more enlightened. Younger generations coming up are uh, used to thinking about sports not in terms of men's sports, women's sports, um, particularly around sports like soccer and MMA. And so I think that will also help to open up more coverage and attention to women's sports in mainstream media. But like I say, I think these sort of women's sports dedicated channels are proliferating in ways that will also help that conversation. Can we talk for a minute now about the money? involved in sports. One of the folks that you quote in the book talks about how 
The real value in U.S. entertainment television has been and continues to be controlling sports rights. These rights fees are astronomical. Meantime, it seems like the wealth of what's out there to entertain folks is growing exponentially. There's so much content taking eyes away from watching sports. What's next? If sport was once considered the modern cornerstone of U.S. culture, where is it now because of all of those increased opportunities? Yeah, I always say to my students, you know, when we're talking about sports, it's never really about sticks and balls, right? Sports is always about something else. And it feels as if there's been a broader, this has been theorized by some scholars as a sportification of culture, where sports touches every aspect of our culture in terms of questions of representation, social power, economics, fashion, celebrity. Um, I think social media has also really helped for athletes to become their own brands in ways that separate them from their teams, if they're team sport athletes, but also, you know, sort of position them as back in the film days, you know, the studio system, you had stars who were sort of packaged by their studios to have certain kinds of persona. We see athletes now with their own kind of vertically integrated media companies and, you know, again, their social media presence. But this touches on, you know, you now have like uh, basically fashion shows at the beginning of NFL games, right, that are like posted all over. So the athletes, I think, themselves are core to that, but also the broader culture is really interested in the ways in which sports is always about these broader questions and also is inherently melodramatic and inherently about community. So for instance, one of the things I think Netflix and other streaming outlets have discovered is that even folks who aren't sports fans are completely captivated by the sort of mashup of documentary, reality TV, melodrama that is these reality TV series about different sports. And that that, again, touches on also politics, but fashion and other, all of these different elements. It used to be, you know, the broadcast began 30 seconds about what to look for, X's and O's in the game, and then boom, first pitch. It's so different now. The productions that happen inside of the game that have nothing to do with the game are really extensive. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, one of the things we're seeing and I talk a bit about in, in the book is the ways in which you also have an intersection between television coverage of sports and game culture more broadly. So this also, of course, appeals to a generation that has come up with gaming, but the ability for the visual overlay technology to look so much like video gaming and to engage viewers in terms of that feeling of a kind of control and interactivity is really important going forward. And it's also been a way that sports, which we may think of as dying in some ways based on their demographics, are reinventing themselves as being significant for whole new generations of viewers. So we see this happening with 
professional golf in particular is what I've been working on. But apparently other sports like polo, for instance, are interested in doing this as well with uh, reality TV series, with uh, deals, with streamers, and you know, using this kind of video overlay technology to bring in new generations. What is your favorite video overlay technology? Oh, well, so yeah, this is interesting. I'm kind of interested in the ones that fail, actually, like historically. That was going to be my next question. I was going to start with success Um, and finish with the duds. (laughs) I mean, one of the things I wanted to write about at some point, I will, it wasn't included in this book, but there was a experiment on, I believe it was NBC coverage of uh, football, NFL football game, which uh, did not include sound. I should say, didn't include commentary. The idea was to put you in the stands and not have any commentary to anchor the broadcast. And it was a complete disaster. So that that's like the other direction. Um, but one of the most successful video overlay technologies ever, which now I think people feel they can't do without, is the first and 10 line in football coverage. And now I think that, uh, you know, you get these terrific video overlays of, uh, for instance, during the all-star baseball home run derby, you know, the sort of trajectory of where everybody's uh, uh, runs are flying out. Um, And you see similar technology in terms of the NBA and college basketball coverage in terms of the array of shots that are taken Um, and being able to visualize that without being on a coaching staff or something is a really, I think, appealing technology for folks. I also like the the golf shot tracker. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I do write about the, that technology in the book because it's also part, I think, of a broader phenomenon, again, of bringing uh, video game technology into the aesthetics of TV coverage. But this also extends to the built environment of sport in terms of phenomena like top golf, where you can go and basically put yourself in the position of being a touring pro and see those same graphics overlaid on your experience, um, which is a really fascinating phenomenon to me. Pretty fun, too. And pretty fun. Yeah. If, you, if you're a golfer, <laughs> top golf is the way. We talked about a lot of the changes that we've seen so far just in how sports are produced. Another change is that constant stream of advertisements now during live game action. You see creatively placed billboards and signage, actual in-game promotions, like the ball is snapped and they go into a split screen and they're selling you something in a side commercial box next to the live action. How are fans reacting to these modifications? Oh, it's a great question. I don't know how people are reacting necessarily other than the kind of more purist uh, traditionalists, I guess I should say, in some sports I know are very upset about advertising patches on uniforms, the sort of very overt, large swoosh on uh, baseball uniforms was also a big struggle a couple years back. But in terms of in-game advertising, you know, sometimes that's another area for tech fail. There was some early hockey coverage on ESPN where the advertising uh, overlays on the ice would, you know, the guys would disappear when they skated over that section of the ice. So I think there were things that definitely had to be worked out there where it makes the advertising visible in a really unwanted way, right? Because it interferes with the game itself. I think a lot of times people are able to sort of ignore the green screen, the projected advertising, for instance, in baseball often, 
But yeah, the split screen stuff, yeah, I wonder. I think we've become a bit inured to it, but I think more so when it's on the uniforms and on the bodies of the players that people notice it even more. But it's the economy of sports, right? We talked about the outrageous rights fees. They've got to pay for it somehow. Yeah. Is sports TV even profitable anymore? No, it's a loss leader. It's a loss leader, but it's still required that telecasters of all kinds have live content. And this is why, you know, sort of sports continues to thrive in the sense of even though streaming can attract very, very niche audiences, you still have to have the mass, relatively diversified audiences come to your telecasts in order to be profitable, but also in order for them to know, you know, what else they can watch, what news coming out, for advertisers to have eyeballs on a telecast to promote films, let's say. And of course, this is one of the reasons we see annually the Super Bowl as being the most deeply invested in moment of the year for many advertisers. Back in the day, the, I don't know, this could be apocryphal, but the uh, story was that Masterlock, the padlock company, right, that they only uh, put advertisements in the Super Bowl. That was it. They didn't advertise otherwise because that was all they needed. <laughs> that and of- lockers across American <laughs> high schools. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who who's their competitor? But, yeah, that was... <laughs> Interesting. But, I mean, and, and no judgment here. There are many non-sports fans who tune into the Super Bowl just to see the truly creative, incredible advertisements at the commercial breaks. Yeah, the advertisements, the halftime spectacle, yes. What are you researching now? What is your next project on the horizon? I have a uh, book under contract with Rutgers University Press um, for a series called Screening Sports, and I am writing a volume about the football film. It's focused on U.S., film. And then I have a, another book project in development about the sports built environment and the ways in which particularly the so-called Rust Belt in the U.S. has used sports complexes and urban sports districts to attempt to revive their economy. But I put this in a larger history that also relates to media history in terms of the post-war U.S. and the development of sports stadiums and sports districts uh, and now travel team sports complexes and sports tourism, such as the Field of Dreams field in Dyersville, Iowa, as part of a broader shift within U.S. culture and and entertainment economy pegged to sports and the ways in which historically this has also been very much about so-called urban redevelopment in terms of racialized capitalism who gets displaced in the in the name of those developments particularly as they appeal to notions of shared community at the same time well it sounds like you have a lot on your plate and a lot of exciting things that you're going to be researching and new history that you're going to share with us. And we look forward to those opportunities to read more from you. Thank you for joining us today for the UCI podcast. Thank you so much. I'm Kara Capuano. Thank you for listening to our conversation and good luck with your brackets. The UCI podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 